everybody hear me okay? Ivan, is it on? Is it going? And the music. Okay, so first of all, welcome to, to our midweek program. Tonight, before we start, could I invite you to just take your cell phone, just make sure that it's on vibrate or silent. I also want to tell you that if you go out today and you look in the foyer area, table to the left has been organized with all of the previous handouts. If you missed one, you're welcome to go pick that up. I want to give you a quick schedule of what we have coming up here in the seminar. So tomorrow night, very important topic, Babylon Rising. We are going to introduce the major players in Bible prophecy as far as the mark of the beast and all of those things are concerned. That's tomorrow night. So Babylon Rising is the topic that I urge you to be with us for. This is going to be an important topic. And then Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, we have three topics that go together. So this is in the evenings. So Friday night, we're going to talk about Revelation's keys of death. And then on Saturday morning, we're going to talk about the secrets of answered prayer. That's going to be right at noon, okay? So I, I keep saying morning, but Saturday at noon, we're going to have this topic. And then afterwards, we're going to have a fellowship luncheon. It's going to be held downstairs in another part of our facility. And if you have questions, if you have comments, we welcome you to stay by and we'll, excuse me, we'll talk about that. Saturday night, hellfire. If God is a God of love, why does he allow suffering? And this topic is actually called God's strange act. So that's going to be Saturday night. And then on Sunday night, we are going to talk about the 1,000 years in the book of Revelation. Very important topic. I hope you can plan to be with us. As you can understand, some of these presentations require a little bit of background. So in case you're wondering, like, why would they talk about death in a prophecy seminar? Well, believe it or not, Revelation has quite uh, some very important teachings on the subject of death. And so we're going to be looking at that in preparation for our study on Revelation chapter 20. Now, tonight's topic is called A River Runs Through It, but before we launch into this presentation, I want to welcome our group that's joining us there in Delaware County, uh, Leah's group. We're so thankful that they've been with us tonight. And at the end of this presentation, we have something special that we want to share with you. But before we begin our topic tonight, I'm going to invite you to just bow your heads with me as we have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, this evening, as we open the Bible together, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be present. We ask for wisdom. We ask for guidance as we look at this topic in Scripture. For we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, the Bible says that when God made man, he placed him in a garden. And the Bible actually tells us that in this garden, he had given and provided everything that man needed in order to be happy. But there was something also very interesting about this location because the Bible says that in Eden, and this is from Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. Now, notice that here at the very beginning of creation, the Bible describes a river that ultimately we're going to see again in Scripture at the very end, in fact, Come with me now to Revelation chapter 22, and notice the Bible says, he showed me a pure what? River of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And on, on the middle of the street and on either side of the river 
was there the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, I want you to notice that the Bible describes a river at the very beginning in time at Eden. All the way at the end, the Bible describes a river again. But what's very interesting is that right there in the middle of the Bible, we find that there is the story of Jesus buying it all back. And I know you know this, but when Jesus died, there was a soldier that took a spear. This was common back then to just check to make sure that they were dead. And so he pierced the side of Jesus. And as you know, two things came out. Do you remember that? Water and blood. You could say that right there in the middle of the Bible, another river gives us everything that God or man had lost at the beginning, and now it's restored because of the sacrifice that Jesus made. But tonight, I want us to look at something in the life of Jesus that is of importance to every believer. And so I want to read to you from the book of Matthew chapter 3. And this is when Jesus came to John the Baptist, and notice what he said to him. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him, and John tried to what? Now, you understand, of course, John's awkwardness. Now, they were cousins, but the awkwardness was that people were baptized as a symbol of being cleansed from their sins, right? Here is Jesus, the sinless one, coming to John the Baptist, asking for what? Baptism. And notice what John said. John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you are coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all what? Righteousness. Now, did you notice that Jesus taught that baptism was a service that was part of fulfilling all righteousness. Now, tonight I want to talk with you about this ordinance called baptism. And I want you to notice how Jesus was baptized. The Bible says when he had been baptized, Jesus, notice these next two words. What happened? He came up immediately from the water. Now, do you realize that after Jesus had been baptized, if he came up from the water, when Jesus was baptized, what does that mean about the way he was baptized? That means he had to go down where? Into the water. Do you realize that? And so the Bible says, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove alighting upon him. And suddenly, a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, it's not the scope of our study tonight, but if you remember when we covered Daniel 9... The 70 weeks of Daniel 9 describes a period of 69 weeks from the decree to restore and build Jerusalem to the Messiah. And folks, this is the event that prophecy was pointing to. You see, Jesus lived almost in obscurity for 30 years. But when it was time for him to begin his public ministry, the Bible says Jesus was baptized, a dove descended upon him, in other words, anointing him. And then the Bible says that the voice announces, this is my beloved son. This event was the one that was pointed forward to at the end of the 69 prophetic or 483 literal years. Now, I want to make a point real quickly. 
Jesus is the Messiah. Can you say amen? And the word Messiah means the anointed one. Another way for me to say this is that when Jesus was baptized, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. It was poured out upon him. And at this stage, he begins his role as the Messiah in his public ministry for three and a half years. Now, baptism is a very specific symbol. And tonight, I want to show you from the Bible what exactly baptism represents. The Bible says, or do you not know, that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his what? Death. Now, please notice that the Bible teaches that baptism is a symbol of a death. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think that you understand that all of us in here right now, if we've accepted Christ, we're probably a little bit different than we were before we accepted him. Does that make sense? And you you understand, folks, that when a person receives Christ, in a figurative sense, their old life passes away. Does that make sense? So, you might have been part of a, you know, a rough group of people. You might have done things that you're not proud of. When someone accepts Christ, their lives change, and one could say that they've made a break or their old life is done. They've died to that old life of sin. So baptism is one symbol of the death of my old life thanks to the power of Jesus. Okay, does that make sense? It's the symbol of the death of my old life of sin. But that's not all. The Bible goes on in Romans 6. It says, therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was, what? Raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. And notice these next two words. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. Did you notice that the same way that Jesus was resurrected from the grave, which was nothing short of a miracle, The Bible says that through the symbol of baptism, it also represents that a person has been raised up to a new life. Now, I want to ask you a question. Was it a miracle that Jesus was raised from the dead? Is it a miracle that someone who lies, cheats, steals, and does all other kinds of sinful things, through the power of Christ, lives a new life? Is that also a miracle, yes or no? Absolutely. Christianity is not just like a, a changing or, or like a modifying of the old. It's a transformation of an old life. Does that make sense? And so here the Bible describes that not only is baptism a symbol of the death of the old life, but it's also a symbol of the power of God to resurrect a person into a new creature in Christ. Then the Bible goes on to say, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our what? Old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Now, I want to pause here for a moment. Did you know that the Native Americans who first occupied what we now call North America, they had a teaching, which is quite profound now that I think about it, that within every person, there are two wolves. Have you ever heard of this parable? Like two wolves. And one wolf was good, one was bad. And the idea was that whichever wolf you feed more, when temptation comes, it will determine if you give into it or you overcome it. 
So the Bible says here that our old man is crucified with him. What is this old man that Paul is talking about? It's talking about our fleshly nature. Do you remember Jesus said to his disciples, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And, you know, when we go through the the epistles of Paul, Paul calls it the old man versus the new man. And these different explanations are basically the same idea. In every one of us, we have two natures. How many did I say? Two. And so if we accept Christ, we become partakers of that divine nature. But each day, we are feeding one of these two natures. And so when you go home and you sit in front of the television, depending on which channels you click on, that would determine which nature you feed. Does that make sense? And then when temptation comes, depending on which one you fed more, that would determine if you overcome that temptation or if you give into it. Does that make sense? So here is Paul telling us a little bit about the experience of a person who has been resurrected to a new life and now finds that they can have strength to overcome the fleshly nature because they've crucified that fleshly nature through Christ. Now, tonight, I want to talk to you a little bit about the way that people are baptized. Did you know that in our world today, there are different methods? One of them is when you are immersed. What does immersed mean? It simply means that you go completely under the water. There's another form of baptism where they do that three times, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. There's another one where they sprinkle, very common today. There's one where they pour things on you. There's another that they use salt. There's some that sprinkle you with oil. There's even snow, wine. There's all these different forms of ways that people are baptized. But did you know that the Bible in Ephesians 4 verse 5, it says there's one Lord, one faith, and only one form of baptism. Tonight, we're going to talk about that. And I want to give you a little, serve, uh, a little illustration about that in the story of Cain and Abel. Now, I know you know that when God told Adam and Eve, after they sinned, um, and then, of course, Cain and Abel, to bring a sacrifice, Abel followed God's instructions, and he brought exactly what God had said. He slew it as a symbol of faith in the coming Messiah. Of course, the Bible teaches without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So in in a faint way, Abel was able to comprehend the, the symbolism of the sacrifice of the coming Messiah. But Cain, on the other hand, did something that was very different. Instead of bringing a sacrifice, Cain brought the, the, the product of his, you could say, his labors. So he brought his harvest. And some of you might be sitting here thinking, like, what's wrong with that? Well, for one thing, when God tells us to do something a certain way, does it make sense that it's important to obey how God has asked us to obey? Does that make sense? In other words, if I could rephrase this, Cain represents the Christians today that want to do what's called a a tailor-made religion. In other words, they want it to fit them. And so instead of following what Jesus has said, they would rather make the Bible fit their own preconceived or their own desires. And so this is what the story of Cain and Abel, how it applies to us in our modern times. Because when we look at Scripture, there are a number of symbols that God has given us that are very specific. For example, when Jesus instituted the communion service, what two items did he tell them 
to use in the symbolism of his body which was, and his blood, which was shed. What two symbols did he ask them to use? What two elements? Bread and, and wine, right? Now, I want you to think for a moment. If they decided to use like orange juice and spaghetti, would that have been the same? No, it wouldn't have been the same. Does it make sense that when Jesus said you have to use unleavened bread and you use wine, Jesus was telling them very specifically the symbolism which was to, which was to represent what he was about to do for them. Does that make sense? In the same way, when Jesus was baptized, notice that when Jesus came up immediately from the water, which intimates that when Jesus was baptized, how did he baptize? He was baptized where? In the water. He went down into the water. That's why when he was finished baptizing or finished being baptized, he came up out of the water. Now, do you realize that the original word that's translated into our English word baptism is actually the Greek word baptizo? And baptizo, it means to immerse. Like, even um, that, that word is used in, in the vernacular to describe when they immerse a cloth in dye in order to make it have the color. Do you understand? So in other words, when they use this term to baptizo something, it's like a, when a textile merchant takes a cloth and he submerges it in the dye so that it becomes the same color. This is what the word baptizo in Greek actually means. Now, let's look at a few other places where the term baptism is used to get clues about the method in which it was performed. John also was baptizing in Ana near to Salem because there was what? Now, I want you to think. Let's use common sense. If you could just sprinkle people or use salt or wine, or oil, or any of the other myriads of methods by which people receive baptism, does it make sense that John wouldn't have needed to be near what kind of water? Much water. Did you notice that? Baptism, according to the Bible, it requires a person to be put underneath the water. Let me read you another example. This is from the, God, uh, the book of Acts. And now as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the where? Notice that the eunuch is being baptized. And as he's being baptized, Philip puts him into the water and he baptized him. Now, I want you to know that when we talk about baptism, it has a very specific meaning, a symbolism. The Bible says, as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on what? Now, I want you to understand that when the Bible says you've put on Christ, this is a metaphor. It's simply saying that as many of you as have been baptized have become part of his body. Now, what does that mean? The body of Christ in the New Testament is a symbol for the church. You can read 1 Corinthians 12, and that's very clear in that, in that chapter. The idea is that baptism is a means by which people become part of a church organization or a church body. And when we look at the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus makes it clear that a, in a service like baptism 
is in a way similar to a public declaration of faith. Because, you know, baptism is a symbol that I have died to my old life of sin. I have been resurrected to a new life in Jesus. And in a way, it's as if now I am walking with Jesus and I am living through him. You know, ladies, if you're married, you understand that if a man proposed to you and said, you know, I want to marry you, but I don't want anybody to know that we're getting married because my friends will make fun of me endlessly and I don't want that. So could we just get married in secret? You'll probably scratch your head and probably say like, you know, this is not going to go the way that I think it is. Never mind. And this is the same thing with baptism. Baptism is simply a public declaration that I accept Jesus and I want people to know that I am following him. Now, why is it that today there are churches don't, don't even practice baptism by immersion anymore? Well, as you understood from our previous lectures, there was an era when Christianity became diluted through some pagan practices. This is one of them. For several centuries after the establishment of Christianity, baptism was usually conferred by what? Immersion, but since the 12th century. So this one took a little bit longer. The practice of baptism by infusion, that means sprinkling, has prevailed as this manner is attended with less inconvenience than baptism by immersion. So let me just give you a little history, and we're going to address this a little bit later in more depth. During the period uh, prior to the, the 12th century that's mentioned here, there was a period in Europe when there was largely one church that influenced religious matters. And in their influence, one of their teachings was, and you know, infant mortality has really gone, okay, the infant mortality rate has gone up, or do I say gone down? In other words, in our, gone down, right? Okay, so, yeah, so children don't die as easily now as they did centuries ago. Does that make sense? And so when children would die, these parents wanted to know that their child was saved, and so Usually after the child was born, not long after, a priest would come. And, you know, if it was wintertime, you have to imagine the priest going into the water with their thick robes, taking the baby, you know. And so this concept became, like, cumbersome to them. And so they just started sprinkling babies, and this was because it was more convenient. And so that's kind of a little background. But when you go through the remnants of many of these older cathedrals and churches, it's very obvious that these people baptized by immersion. This is St. John's Church in Ephesus, uh, fourth century. So even in the fourth century, notice that baptistry. Do you see it? You walk down into it. You go down into the water. Here's another example of, this is a, I think this is an Ethiopian fresco showing that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan. Do you notice that they show him being immersed? Okay, um, this is the Lateran Palace, and I'm going to show you what it looks like inside. Do you see this, this um, piece of article of furniture? That's a baptistry. Okay, that's not a bathtub. That's a baptistry. Why is it so big? Because the people went into it. Does that make sense? Um, I know that some of you will know this was a Christian church at one point. Today, it's, it's obviously not. But at the time that it was built... The Hagia Sophia, I think, was like one of the largest Christian churches in the world. Well, guess what? They inside had a regular baptistry. Here's a picture of Vladimir the Great, um, one of the Russian emperors. 
I don't know if that's the right word. Russian czar is probably the better word. But anyway, Vladimir was baptized. Notice how he was baptized. This is called a baptismal font. They went down into this water. Some of you know that the Leaning Tower of Pisa has a cathedral next to it, if you've ever been here. And uh, inside of this, there is actually a very ornate oct octagonal, no, hexagonal, like six sides, a, bapti uh, a baptismal font. Now, the immersion of the candidate represents the death of Christ. While he is under the water, the burial of Christ is being represented. When he comes out of the water, the resurrection is represented. This was from the 12th century. Baptism may be given not only by immersion, but also by effusion. Again, same idea, sprinkling, or sprinkling with, or sprinkling with it. But it is, it, is a safe, it is the safe way to baptize by immersion because it is the most common custom. So do you notice that we see a shift in Christian practice, but even then, immersion was still not wholly forgotten by those that were doing this. It was at the Council of Ravenna, so again, 14th century, that they were saying both are equally okay. But when you go back and you look at what the reformers had to say about this, I believe it is, a, this is John Wesley. By the way, what now all Christian churches today have been influenced by Wesley, but what churches have been predominantly influenced by John and Charles Wesley? Does anybody know? Methodists, right? It is, I believe it is a duty to observe so far as I can to baptize by what? Now, you know what's ironic about this? The Methodist church today, with few exceptions, baptizes by sprinkling. I know this because I've met hundreds of Methodists during my career as a seminar presenter. Um, here's John Calvin. By the way, does anybody know what Christian... John Calvin was really a huge influence as a theologian for every church. And almost every church has one doctrine that they get from him. But does anybody know what denomination today was the most influenced by John Calvin? Presbyterians. Presbyterians. Please look. The very word baptize, however, signifies to what? Immerse. And it is certain that immersion was the practice of the ancient church. Now, I want to tell you something. My father was a Presbyterian minister, but he was baptized by, guess how? Sprinkling. <laughs> it's, it's ironic. Uh, this is Martin Luther. On this account, I could wish that such as are to be baptized should be completely what? Immersed. Now, if you are Lutheran or if you have any Lutheran friends, you just ask them this question. In your church, when they baptize, how do they do it? He's going to tell you, they just sprinkle us. That, that's how the Lutheran church does it even to this day. According to the meaning of the word and to the significance of the ordinance, as also without a doubt, it was instituted by Christ. When you're baptized, there are really three steps that are necessary before you're baptized. The first step is described in Acts chapter 2. Then Peter said unto them, do what? Repent and be what? Baptize every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now, I want to pause here. The Bible teaches that before you are baptized, you should first what? You have to repent. Now, I don't know if you realize that the word repent, it, it kind of, it, I shouldn't say kind of, it, it's this idea. You know, you do a 180, okay? So does it make sense that before a person really takes this step, they should turn away from their old life of sin? If that's clear, can you say amen? So, that's the first step. Before a person is baptized, they should repent of their old life of sin. Number two, after they repent from their life of sin, they should believe the truth. Here's what the Bible says. Then, Paul, then said Paul, 
John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should, what? Believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. Now, the word believe, it doesn't just mean that you know it in your head. Does that make sense? That's not what the word believe means. The word believe actually means that you are so embracing this idea that you live it out in your life. I'm going to tell you a quick story very quickly. Um, years ago, I, I, had a, I, I actually worked indirectly for a dentist. Indirectly. It's a long story. But anyway, as kind of a perk of, of working in this place, I had all my amalgam fillings removed. Now, I'm not giving medical advice here. I'm just saying that this is what happened to me. And so, you know, I had all of that removed. And then years later... I ended up in Canada. I was holding a seminar like this one, and I was sitting across from a dentist. And I was curious, because I wanted to kind of pick his brain. So I said to him, sir, is it true that amalgam fillings are not healthy for you? And he said, I think they're fine. I mean, the, the, um, the ADA has done a number of, of studies. They've clipped the fingernails of people that have had mercury filling. It just gave me, you know, all, it was just giving me all of this information. So he had two sons, and I, I noticed that they were th- like 14 and 16. So I said, Doc, do your kids get cavities? He said, they do. And I said, when your kids get cavities, what kind of fillings do you put in their mouth? And you know what he said? He said, I put amalgam fillings. I want to ask you a question. Did he believe that they were safe? How do I know? Because he did it. Does that make sense? You see, folks, if you really believe something, you will actually do it. Does that make sense? Like, if you believe that the seventh day is the Sabbath, how would you know? You would keep it. Does that make sense? So this is the same idea. When the Bible says that they should believe, it's not that they just know about it. It's that they are living it out in their lives. Does that make sense? So the third step is that you have to understand the truth. You have to be taught the truth and understand it. This is what Jesus said to his followers, his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to what? Observe all things that I have commanded you. Notice this. Jesus told his followers, his disciples, I want you to go everywhere. I want you to baptize people. But before you baptize them, I want you to teach them to observe the things that I've taught you. That's why it's important before a person's baptized. And I could be wrong, but in most churches, even in the Catholic church, before they, you know, get a member into membership, they do a catechism, right? They study with them. And that, that same catechism course extends to the Episcopal, the Lutheran, and the Anglican churches. They all use the same, like, the same idea of a catechism. But the Baptist churches, the Methodist, Presbyterian, and the Church of Christ, and these other denominations, same idea. Before you get baptized as a symbol of your membership in that particular denomination, they usually go through a set of studies with you so that you have an understanding of how Jesus wants you to live. Does that make sense? And so this is what the Bible is is telling us here. Now, there are, now let me back up here. Which of these three can a baby do? None. 
A baby, a baby doesn't know that he's doing anything wrong. A baby can't, you know, demonstrate his belief. Why am I mentioning that? The Bible does not advocate infant baptism. And I know that for some people, this is going to be a surprise. If you were, you know, baptized as a baby, if you were sprinkled, technically, you were dedicated. Like, you know, Jesus, when he was a baby, he was brought to the temple and they prayed over him. There's nothing wrong with that. But baptism is something that a cognizant, dis, uh, 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 a deciding adult needs to do. Does that make sense? It has to be a deliberate choice on the part of the adult. Now, is there ever a place for a person to be baptized more than once? Well, in the Bible there was. In Acts 19, it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there be a Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if you understand what the conversation is. Paul comes to a church, and he's asking them questions about what they believe, and he realizes that someone didn't teach them about the third member of the Godhead. So then he says to them, what then were you baptized? <clears throat> into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard that, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Had these believers, had they been baptized already? They were. Were they baptized again? Yes. Why? Because this is an example of a group of people who had not been taught the basics, and once they learned some new truth and they accepted it, they were invited to acknowledge their faith in this new truth by being baptized again. And so Acts 19 is an example of that. I want to share a quick story with you. Um, years ago, there was a hospital where a nurse was finishing her shift. It was 9 o'clock, and there was a patient in room 715. His name was Mr. Williams. He had just suffered a mild heart attack. And, you know, as this nurse was getting ready to close out her shift, she thought, you know, I should visit Mr. Williams one last time before I go home. So something impressed her to just, you know, gently tap on his door. She went inside, and there he was sitting in the chair. And uh, she said to him, you know, how are you? He said, I'm feeling okay. But he said, nurse, could you do something for me tonight? She said, sure, I'd be happy to do something. And he said, I need you to call my daughter. And she said, well, you know, it's, it's a little bit late. Why don't we wait until tomorrow? And he said, no, 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 no. I need you to do it tonight. I need you to do it right now. And she thought about it for a minute. She said, okay, Mr. Williams, like, I'd be happy to do that for you. And while she was getting ready to do that, he said, but before you go, could you please get me a piece of paper and a pencil? And she said, sure. So she got the pencil and paper. She went to his patient file. There was listed the nearest of kin, and it was his daughter. And so he called her. I'm uh, sorry, she called her, and it was a young girl named Susie. And so he, she, she picked up the phone, and she called Susie. And when Susie answered, the nurse said, Susie, I just want to let you know that your father had a small heart attack, but he's doing okay. He's recovering. He's here in the hospital and uh, he wanted me to let you know 
And on the other end, there was a bit of silence, and then this was the reply. You can't let him die. You can't let him die. And she said, no, don't worry. He's okay. He's, he's not going to die, but if you want to see him, you, you'll probably want to come see him soon. And she said, no, you don't understand. She said, years, I haven't spoken with him in a year. She said, the last time I talked with him on the phone, she said, I told him that I hated him. She said, we had an argument. It was about a boyfriend of mine. And because I felt like he was, you know, not understanding me, I got frustrated and I told him, you know, I hate you, don't talk to me, and I hung up. And that's the last time we spoke, and that was a year ago. And she said, is there time that I could see him tonight? And the nurse said, you know, if you come now, I'll let you see him. So Susie, they both hung up, and Susie dashed over to the hospital. And when she arrived, the nurse said, well, let's go to room 715. And they brought her in, and sure enough, Mr. Williams was still sitting in the chair. He was slumped over. And so the nurse checked for a pulse, no pulse. They did everything to try to revive him. No, no luck. He was dead. And Susie began to sob. You know, can you imagine that? You know, the last thing that you've ever said to someone you love is that you hate them. Well, sure enough, she was just devastated by this thought. But as she looked on his bed, there was a little note. This is what it said. It said, Dear Susie, I want you to know that I love you and that I forgive you. And I want you to know that I don't hate you. Love. And so Susie picked that up and she began to cry even harder. And you know, when I think about a story like that, it reminds me of this planet. I don't know if you realize, but many people like Susie have said the same thing to God at some point in their lives. They don't want anything to do with him. Maybe they're angry. Maybe they feel upset at something that has happened to them in their life. And I know you know this, but from our studies together, this world, it's coming to an end. Does that make sense? Things are not going to just keep going on indefinitely. Things are wrapping up at an alarmingly fast pace. And tonight, do you know what God is asking for us? He's asking for us to come back. He's asking for us to turn our lives over to him. Tonight, I want to ask Rob and Dick to give a card out to you that looks like this. It's on the greeter's table there. And <clears throat> this card has five points. Now, if you're watching this via Zoom or by YouTube, I'm going to ask you to just note your, your group leader because she's going to have a Zoom poll available for you. But there are five points on this card tonight. And I want to invite you, when you get the card, if you would be so kind as to write your name on it, and uh, make sure that do you, ha you have something to write with because we, we want to try to make sure that you can fill this out. So there are five points, and let's go through them together if you don't mind. The first one says, I surrender my life fully to Christ. If you can say that tonight, if you can say I fully surrender my life to Jesus, could you please put a check by that first one? The second one says, I want to be baptized by immersion the way Jesus was. doesn't mean that you're going to do it now, but it's just saying that you would like to prepare for that event in the future. Folks, you don't have to be perfect to want to be baptized. You just have to have the desire to do it 
and we will help you prepare for that event. That's the second one. If that's your desire, please put a check by the second one. The third one says, I have been baptized, but I have questions about rebaptism. Now, this is not for everyone, but if this one applies to you, would you be brave enough to put a check by that third one? The fourth one says, please pray for me. I need help in solving a problem. I've had guests tell me, you know, I have a Sabbath conflict with work. I want to keep the Sabbath, but I'm working. Others have said to me, I have a family member that doesn't like me attending these meetings, and it's been a struggle. Maybe you have something else, and you don't, if you feel comfortable, you can just put a quick note there as to what the exact issue is, but I'd be more than happy to pray for you. I have, by the way, been praying for you. And then the, the last one, number five, says, I'd like a personal visit. Now, if you check that, I will show up either here at the hall a little bit early to meet with you, or I could even arrange to meet you at your house, okay? But once you check out those points, would you be so kind as to just fill out your name? You don't have to give me all the information if you don't choose to. But if you do check, I would like a personal visit. Could you just make sure that you give me your address just so that I could schedule a time when we could talk together? And um, I want to ask you, when you're done with that, could you be so kind as to just, just hold it up like this? I'm going to ask Dick and Rob to come by. They're going to pick that up. And I want to ask them, once they're done picking them up and collecting them, to just bring them to the front because I want to pray for every card that's been filled out tonight. And folks, I understand that some of you are learning some new things, and I'm going to pray that God will continue to lead you because you are not here by accident. Can you say amen to that? It's not by chance that you ended up here and so God has a purpose. There is some reason why at this point in your life you find yourself in this Discovering Revelation seminar. When you're done with that, just hold it up. My associates, Rob and Dick, are going to come by. They'll pick that up from you. And um, yeah, you can just, yeah, just, just pass it into the center and they'll come by and they'll pick that up. Thank you. So <clears throat> once we're done collecting those, I'm going to ask them to bring it up to me and then I will have a prayer over them, and I think that's pretty much it. Is that, everything? Is that all of them? Okay, we have one more. Okay, good. So, yeah, please, when you're done, could you just pass it in to one of those two men? And let's bow our heads as we close our topic tonight with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for this opportunity to study the Bible together. It's my prayer tonight that every person in this room, even those watching, will have an opportunity to truly express their desire to follow Jesus and to fulfill all righteousness. Lord, we know that planet Earth is fast closing, that everything that we're seeing around us, signs in nature, signs in politics, signs just in, in every corner and every avenue are just telling us that we are living in a spectacular time. But in the midst of all of the chaos, help us just to be faithful to Jesus. This is our prayer tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, again, I want to thank you for joining us. Just a reminder, tomorrow night is a very important topic. Our topic is called Babylon Rising. Please plan to be with us. God bless you and have a good night.